Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Everybody's good. So I was, uh, this was drawn to my attention. I wore it because I like it, but uh, Matt Wesley said, you know it's going to be a serious sermon when the pastor wears a submission t-shirt to the sermon. So it's right. So if anybody wants to know what a Kimura is, I'll, f- I'll gladly show you what it is. I will not explain it. I will just do it, and it'll be a lot of fun. Mark said he's up for it. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so really fun stuff. Um, I'm glad that you guys are here this morning, and we're going to take our next step in this series. Uh, I told you last week that we were jumping into a series, three legs in one giant series. The first leg is God and man, and we're going to be talking about the creation account. We're going to talk about men, mankind, right, and this idea of being image bearers. And so we're going to focus the next, uh, well, this week and the next four weeks on that time. We'll take a brief break from that, do some other things, and then we're going to jump back in with another six-week segment of this series where we talk about, um, so we're talking about order and man, sorry, and then the second leg of this, we're going to talk about disorder and man because we screwed everything up. Can I get an amen? We screwed everything up, and so we're going to talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean. Then we'll take, again, another break because that'll probably put us somewhere around Christmas time. And then we will jump back in with the longest leg of this series where we talk about reorder and God and how God begins to change that system that we broke and how he begins to reorder it and and bring redemption and life to it. Uh, Each week you're going to have a handout that you can write in, fill in the blanks. If you did not get a handout this morning, Mark Williams is going to deliver that to you. So just raise your hand, keep it up, and Mark will bring it to you. Other than that, we're going to jump right into it. So last week we began by talking about uh, how we know what we know. And I shared with you, some of you, uh, a thing that will be that was brand new to you, and that is that there are actually multiple kinds of knowing for us as human beings. There, there are multiple kinds of knowing. I don't actually know uh, personally, it's a funny way to say that, but I don't, I don't personally know if these are the only ways of knowing things. I think we have to take into account sometimes things like revelatory knowing and how God reveals things and shows us things. But we talked about four types of knowing, and these are the four types of knowing that we, we went over. Propositional knowing, knowing about things. Now, I told you last week that this is the paragon of knowing in a scientific worldview in a modern mind, okay? It, this, is the, this is the pinnacle. This is everything for us. And the reason why is because knowing about things puts things in black and white. We want to know that two plus two equals four, don't we? We want to know what is right, we want to know what is wrong, we want to know what is good, we want to know what is bad, and so we love propositional knowing. The problem is, although propositional knowing is vital, although propositional knowing is is an important aspect of knowing, it is by no means and should not be the primary kind of knowing, because you can't know everything this way. It is just simply not possible. Okay, so yes, there are things like 2 plus 2 equals 4, but we need to know other things as well. So that led us to our second type of knowing, which is procedural knowing, and this is knowing how to do things. Now, I showed you that you can know how to do something without knowing the facts about it. I gave two examples last week. I gave the example of riding a bicycle, and I gave the example of a child learning the language. How many of you know all the physics related to riding a bicycle? 
That's what I thought. Okay, couple of people. But how many of you know how to ride a bicycle? Yes, why? Because procedurally, you know how to do something without knowing all the details or the facts. The same is also true when it comes to language. How many of your kids learned how to speak the language first by understanding what prepositions were, what nouns were, what verbs were? I mean, they never even said their first word until they understood mama is a noun. No, of course they didn't, right? You learned language by procedural knowing. You learned language, I would argue, by perspectival knowing and participatory, participatory knowing. And we'll get into those things, right? But we have to employ these different types of knowing. These, knowing are gonna, these types of knowing are going to come in uh, full force when we talk about how to interpret the Scripture I love this uh, quote from Russian playwright Anton Chekhov. Anton Chekhov said this. He says, knowledge is of no value unless you put it into practice. How many of you know that at your workplace? Yes, exactly. Like Barney knows a lot of things, but he doesn't do anything, right? And so it's of no value if he doesn't actually do something. All of you know that that's nonsense. But anyway, so knowledge is of no value unless you put it into practice. We need propositional knowledge but we need to put it into practice. That's procedural knowledge. That's knowing how to do something. The third type of knowing is perspectival knowing. And that's one that we're going to talk a lot about today as we get into philosophy and theology and ultimately what we call worldview. Perspectival knowledge is knowing how to perceive things. How to perceive things. We as people are um, story-generating people, we're meaning-creating people. We look at the world around us and we've got to make sense of it, okay? But here's where we run into danger. We run into danger when we think our perspective is the only perspective, right? How many of you know that that's true in politics? Everybody's like, I don't know. Right? It's true in politics. How many of you know that's true in faith? Come on. Yes, it's true in faith. It's true in your understanding of the scripture. It's true in your relationships with one another. Husbands and wives get into the biggest conflicts because they fail to look at the other's perspective. It's just what happens. Most of our tension is because we go, I will not see it your way, right? And we need to gain a different perspective. So perspectival knowing is a knowing how to perceive the world. How is this important when it comes to interpreting the Bible? It's most important when you realize the people of the Bible, the people who wrote the scriptures, didn't have your perspective. They didn't see the world anything like you see the world. I've shared with you guys ancient cosmology and the idea that they believed that this was just a giant flat disk and that underneath that flat disk was an underworld. And they talked about the sea and the sea was a a place of darkness and evil and that the earth, this flat disk, was held up by four pillars. And then there was a canopy over the skies, right? And there was water above and there was water below. And then then there was living creatures and all of this stuff happens. And this was their ancient cosmology. And where did they derive this strange picture? From the same Bible you read. But you know why you see it different? Because whether you like it or not, you accepted science at some point. Uh Uh-oh. Here goes Nathan. Right? You accepted science. And when science zoomed out and saw that this globe of a planet wasn't one, a flat disk, and number two, wasn't held up by four pillars, you all of a sudden looked at it and said, that doesn't 
that doesn't make the Bible contradict itself. It comports fully when you understand what the Bible was saying, why the Bible was saying it, who holds it in place, and that it is held in place. You start to understand the Bible very different when you gain a different perspective. So we talked about perspectival knowledge. And then we talked about participatory knowing. That's knowing how to relate to your world. Now the example that I gave you with all of these is that all of these types of knowing lead to every kind of belief that you have. Every belief that you espouse came because of these types of knowing. And I gave you the example of Peter following after Jesus. What does Jesus do with Peter when he calls him for the first time? He doesn't say, Peter, come sit down and let me teach you doctrine. That would be cool. It's also worth remembering that Peter at least had a Jewish worldview, right? So we can't take that away from him. But the idea is that Jesus says, come and follow me. He says, come and participate with me. I want you to walk with me. And as Peter walks with God, as Peter knows how he relates to the world, that he is a sinner, that he is saved, or that he is being called by the one who is set to redeem the planet, he then, Jesus then, gives Peter right perspective. And that perspective includes both Peter's way of being and God's way of being. It's the perspective of who Jesus is, but it's also a perspective of what it looks like to love a world around you when you realize you're an object of mercy. It's a different perspective when you understand, I am an, I'm a product of grace. If I thought that I was a product of my awesomeness, which is very small, by the way, right? If it was a product of my awesomeness, I would only get so far. But when I understand that I am a product of grace, I look at you different. Lee, I look at you differently, <laughs> right? I look at you in a, in a very, very different, through a very different lens, a different perspective, Right? So Jesus calls Peter, says, follow after me. Then he gives Peter a new perspective of knowing who he is and how he's supposed to be. At that point, Jesus begins to teach Peter procedural knowledge that does include propositional things. Okay? He does teach him things like if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Those are great propositional truths, I suppose. But he begins to teach Peter the actions of the Christian life, the procedural knowing. When Peter encounters Jesus for the first time, Peter understands who he is in the story in that he goes, you're God and I'm unworthy. But he doesn't begin to trust in Jesus then, does he? Not so much. Sure, I guess he follows after him, but it's not until later, it's not until he understands his participation, his perspective, the procedural knowing that he is and following Jesus, the propositional truths that Jesus has espoused, that Jesus asks Peter and his disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? I know who the world says that I am. I want to know who you say that I am. And Peter, for the first time, says, you are Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he says, are you going to turn away from me? This is another story, but he says, are you going to turn away from me? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? Why? Because Peter now understands, Peter actually knows his belief. He knows who Jesus is. He trusts him. He's not just standing in the presence of a God that he is unworthy of, but now he is standing in the presence of a God who shows mercy to him and calls him to walk out his life with him. 
It's such an important thing. So as we talk about these types of knowing, we begin to grow in our understanding of what life is like. But we need all of them. And the danger is that we've made all of Christianity again propositional knowing. Do you know that Jesus is omniscient? Do you know that he is omnipresent? Do you know this and this and this? If you do, good, you're an official Christian. No. What did I share with you last week? Even the demons know these things and what? They shudder. It doesn't matter what you think you know. It matters who you know. It matters how you know so that you can walk out this life. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going we're to dive into what all of this actually is, okay? We're going to talk about philosophy, we're going to talk about theology, and then that's going to lead us to this concept of worldview. First definition, it's on your cards, is the definition for philosophy. So here is what we understand. Philosophy is, next slide guys, philosophy is, but Philosophy is not on the screen. Philosophy is not Anton Chekhov. It's off, it's off the order, guys. Just go down to philosophy. Philosophy is. The reading's page is this small, so I'm sorry. Okay, I'm just going to go with it, right? Philosophy is the study of, and this is what you need to be hearing, the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence, especially when considered as an academic discipline. Philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge. Right away. The fundamental nature of how you know. What have we already practiced by learning the four types of knowing? We've practiced philosophy, guys. I love how Christians view philosophy as like something that's going to get them (laughs) when they practice philosophy every single day. Philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence, especially when considered as an academic discipline. So here's what I love about this, guys. As we talk about how we know a thing propositionally, perspectively, uh, whatever it might be, however we know things, we are practicing philosophy, and we are looking to understand it to the best of our ability. I also shared with you last week that every person on this planet is trying to make sense of the world. Yes, you can take a pessimistic and a very negative view, and you can say, people just hate God. And truth be told, there are people who do hate God. Usually people who assert that he doesn't exist, but they hate him, so it doesn't make sense, right? But there are people who hate God. But large in part, it is people that don't understand what they're seeing, what they're experiencing, these types of knowing. They don't know what to do with everything. And so they're studying or they're trying to make an, uh, an understanding of it, so they study it. They practice philosophy. That's what you and I do, right? And so we know that the nature of knowledge, the fundamental nature of knowledge, requires four different types of knowing. We know that this is true of reality. What would you employ in the four types of knowing if you wanted to understand reality truly? What kind of knowing? Participatory, sure. What else? 
Your perspective might matter if it's reality, right? I love how these, uh, these uh, videos on YouTube get, get shared all the time. It'll be uh, optical illusions. You guys remember I showed the dancing ballerina lady, right? And then if you look at it long enough, all of a sudden she's turning the other way. It's just interesting. But it's something that happens in your mind. It's some way that you shift. Whether you like that or not, that's a perspective change, okay? The same thing happens when we look at optical illusions where the stairs are going up, but then you shift your perspective and the stairs are going down. Right? We know these kinds of things. We need to know the fundamental nature of reality. We need to get into different perspectives. We need to know that we're not living in a, um, a simulation. But how do we know it? That's where we get into the trouble, right? We've got to get into how we know it. Or the fundamental nature of existence. How do you know you're alive? How do you know you're alive? Mark is using one of the most common quotes, I think, therefore I am, right? I challenge that because I'm not sure Mark thinks, but anyway, so <laughs> I love you. I had to do it. Jacob's not here to pick on you, so I have to try something, right? So philosophy is this, and we practice it every single day. Christian, please stop getting weary of the idea of philosophy. Stop getting weary of the idea of philosophy. Let me take you to a passage in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It'll also be on the screen. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. This is Christians understanding philosophy rightly or understanding our uh, relationship to philosophy rightly. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. You know what the Christian world has read for the longest time? See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. <laughs> philosophy is not your enemy. Philosophy is something you employ every single day of your life, whether you like it or not, right? What you want to look out for is hollow or deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. What is the Bible telling us about perspective when it comes to philosophy? According to this verse, what is the Bible telling us about perspective when it comes to philosophy? We can't just rely on our perspective, a human, hollow, deceptive philosophy that's traditional or whatever it is. It's based on tradition. Instead, what do we have to do? What perspective must we embrace in order to understand it well? Christ. Isn't that fascinating? This is a belief that we hold to Christians, that we don't believe we can understand the, the nature of reality, of knowing, of anything without Christ's teaching or his truth given to us. Now that's going to get us in hot water right off the bat because people are going to go, I just don't even care what you think now. But they often don't care what Christians think because they promote Christ, because Christians promote Christ and ignore reality. It's not reality that is your problem, church. Reality is not my problem. You know what the problem is? Hollow, deceptive ideas of reality. Hollow, deceptive ideas of knowing. That's our problem. And so we need to pursue this in a greater fashion. So we move from philosophy 
uh, to a quote by C.S. Lewis, which I absolutely love. He said this. He said, education without values, as useful as it seems, uh, as useful as it is, seems rather to make man a more clever devil. How many of you can relate to that one? Right? Yes. I didn't mean how can you relate to it because you are that clever devil, but you are, right, at times, right? But education without values. In other words, this is really important, knowing without the philosophy that is embedded in Christ will simply leave you as a more clever devil. It will. You'll do funny things with your philosophy and funny things with your ideas. The word uh, philosophia in the Greek um, first appears actually in the noun form philosophos or a philosopher uh, in the writings of Heraclitus in, I don't know, 500 to 400 BC. And it meant, the, the word philosopher, the person that was a philosopher, simply meant a man who strives for knowledge. How many of you would actually say you just want to know and understand things well? How many of you would say it? Keep your hands up if this is true. You, you seek to know and understand things well. Guess what you are? A philosopher. That's what you are. Maybe you're a slightly uneducated philosopher, but you're still a philosopher nonetheless. You're looking for ways of knowing things, but that is okay. That's what we want to aim for. So we have philosophy, the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence, especially when considered as an academic discipline. The next definition is theology. Theology is the study of the nature of God and religious belief. The study of the nature of God and religious belief. Do you believe, church, that when you understand the nature of God, you've gained knowledge? Do you believe that? You've gained knowledge when you understand the nature of God? How about religious belief? Do you gain knowledge when you understand the nature of religious belief? Yes. Guess what this means? And this is going to be hard for some to hear. Philosophy precedes theology. Philosophy precedes theology. Theology becomes a tool that you use to make sense of the world. Colossians proved it when it said that we have empty and deceptive philosophy, but then in Christ, you have a fuller understanding. You have a right understanding. So we're pursuing knowing, and then we embrace a thing called theology, and theology becomes something that helps us to understand knowing and reality and all of these different things. This is, again, where uh, that C.S. Lewis quote is, is absolutely amazing, right? Uh, if we understand theology, we start to embrace values, and values are necessary coupled with education. They have to be there, otherwise we become very clever devils. Okay, philosophy and theology simply are tools, though, to create something for you. And every one of you has it in this room, and that is a worldview. The definition of a worldview is a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. A particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. And here's what happens when we start to study Genesis. We start to divide according to two camps, which I think are needless uh, divisions, as I pointed out at the beginning of the message. And that is the camp of theology or the camp of science, right? People go, oh, you believe in science, that means you don't believe in God. That's just hogwash. 
Do you still believe in a flat disk earth with a canopy over it? Do you believe in these kinds of four pillars holding us up? You don't because science taught you something and you embraced it. All science is not a problem. Amen? All science is not a problem. Uh, But it doesn't mean there aren't pieces of science that aren't problems. There are serious challenges with certain scientific theories or ideas, okay? So we have a worldview, which is a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. So we have science on one side, sadly, and we, we set that against religion or faith on the other side. But here's the problem. The reason why we've accepted this foolish dichotomy is because we've let the world define faith. Do you know what faith is defined as according to the Bible? The substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That faith has substance and evidence is a biblical truth. Substance and evidence are the pursuits of science that try to understand things, right? The, The evidence that we look for are often based in, hear me church, the evidence that we're looking for are often based in different types of knowing. Do you know how I know that my mom and my dad love me? Not because they wrote a treatise on how they love me. I could believe those things. I could try to accept those things. It would be like somebody sitting me in my crib as a baby and putting a picture of my mom and dad next to me and hoping that that meant they loved me. And guess what would happen? I'd die because I'm hungry, right? I would die. This would not work. But how do I know my mom and dad love me? Because they tell me. Because I participate with them. Because I have a perspective of their heart towards me and my heart towards them. I understand that. And my procedural knowledge knows that when I've gotten myself into 16 tons of crap in my life, guess who is there at all times? My mom, not my dad. But anyway, so (laughs) teasing completely. They were both there. Whatever I did, here's the deal. When I wrecked cars, my dad fixed it. When I wrecked people, my mom tried to fix it, right? You know? So this is what happens. Okay? How do I know those things? Because I've experienced them. I have a different type of knowing. How do I know about God and the world? How does faith make most sense to me? Because I've experienced it. The substance and evidence that faith is giving us are often evidences that are based in a different type of knowing. I have an evidence that God loves me because I've experienced him. Have you? Have you experienced God? Yes, so you know he loves you. So when, when somebody, okay, so my dad loves me, he walks beside me, he tells me I can do anything, and he just, he constantly encourages me, and then somebody comes up to me and gives me this propositional truth, your dad doesn't love you and never has. What do I do with it? I take this propositional supposed truth and call it what it is, a lie, because I've walked with him. I know who he is. I've experienced his love. Same thing happens with God, church. I've walked with God. I've talked with God. I've experienced his presence. And then what happens? The rest of the world goes, he doesn't exist. And I'm going, what? That's a really weird way of looking at that. Because propositionally, they're trying to communicate something to me that I have experienced perspectively or in some sort of participatory way. Okay? This is really, really important. But all of this philosophy and theology and science 
results in what we would call a worldview, a particular philosophy of life and a conception of the world. My particular philosophy and conception of the world is that God created the heavens and the earth. But that's where I'm going to stop right off the bat because the ancient, the ancient mind thought the same thing. And you think the same thing too. He doesn't even know he thinks it. But anyway, sorry, the ancient mind thinks the same thing. God created the heavens and the earth. The modern mind has come and tried to put that uh, to rest, but we've experienced too many things. We've seen too many things. But we have a worldview that says God did it. Here's where we get into danger, church. We get into danger when we plug our ears to other perspectives and other ideas because we think that we need to blindly hold to ideas. I can hold to my worldview that God created the heavens and the earth and I can watch all of the details underneath it change and shift over time. We did with the pillars of the earth. We did with the way the cosmos was constructed and shaped. We already did it. And what we have a problem with today is we panic and we go, no more. I will give no more. You didn't give up anything to begin with. You accepted truth. That's what you did. Bertrand Russell, who is uh, an atheist, or was an atheist, he's long gone. Um, Bertrand Russell once said, most people go through life with a whole world of beliefs that have no sort of rational justification. I wish that I could tell most Christians this in the beginning of their lives as Christians and say, a lot of what you think you know is an irrational understanding. Because you just accepted what your mom or your dad told you. Maybe it's true, but you accepted it blindly and you didn't look. You didn't pursue. You didn't fight for an understanding. And I would challenge you because here's, here's my absolute guarantee. If you pursue truth, you will result in looking at Jesus. I promise. If you pursue truth, you will result in looking at Jesus. It is a guarantee. I will stake my life and everything that I am on it. But Bertrand Russell goes on to say, most people, or he goes to say, most people go through life with a whole world of beliefs that have no sort of natural justification. People's opinions are mainly designed to make them feel comfortable. So why do I believe in the creation account that I was told? Because mom and dad taught me and I don't want that messed up. I'm comfortable. Just need that to stay the same, Right? Why do I need all these things to stay the same? Often because we want to feel comfortable. Truth, for, the, for most people, is a secondary consideration. Is that scary? It's scary. It's scary because if you looked in the mirror, you'd have to say this of yourself. Truth is a secondary consideration often for myself. I just want to know what makes me happy, comfortable. This is what we've done with Jesus, right? Right? Which Jesus do you follow? Hippie Jesus who loves me no matter what I screw up. <laughs> I need that because I need to feel comfortable, <laughs> right? Otherwise, he's going to punch me in the nose. Not because he hates me, but because he loves me and wants me to change, right? But I don't, I don't want truth. I just want what makes me happy, okay? This is what we do as Christians, church. Now, the irony of Bertrand Russell's piece is that Bertrand Russell sees life this way, and yet he also is guilty of the very thing he accuses the world of, right? He's like, I'm not, I'm not worried about truth. I'm just going to believe God doesn't exist. What an interesting idea. Or, for me, it's at least worth the conversation. 
So, I know you guys are looking at this and you're going, oh my goodness, Nathan, this is like ridiculous. What in the world are we talking about? How are we supposed to get anywhere with Genesis in this? You've wasted two weeks talking about knowing and philosophy. You're dang right I have, and I'll take six more if I need to. No, <laughs> right? I've, I've done two weeks of foundation building because it needs you to understand you have a way of coming up with your understanding, your beliefs, your ideas, your truth, okay? You do, and that is you're all philosophers. You're all theologians, and you all, every last one of you has a worldview. Some of your worldview, please Perk up, listen to me. I want everybody's attention. Nobody's eyes down, look up. Some of your guys' worldview is dumb. <laughs> I just needed you to hear that. From somebody needs to tell you that, right? And some of your all's wor- worldview is great. And some of your all's worldview, mo- mainly mine, is not fully informed. It's not fully informed. But man, I like my comfort zone. I like that, so I'm going to stick with it. We're all philosophers, we're all theologians, and we all produce a worldview. So over the, over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at a couple of different things that are informed by our worldview, informed by these four types of knowing. We're going to be talking about uh, the genre of Genesis 1. We're going to talk about the worldview of Genesis 1. We're going to talk about the days of creation, which is one of the hot, most hot-button issues that you can find. And then to work man into this idea, we'll also be talking a little bit about creation out of nothing, but we'll be talking about the Imago Dei, or the image of God. But I want to give you a little bit of a taste of what people understand and what people see with regard to these ideas. They all have perspectives. They all have experienced things, and it leads to very different interpretations. So let's deal with that first one, guys, the the genre of Genesis 1. Next slide for me. Most of the interpretive issues arising from Genesis 1 result from differing conclusions on how the chapter ought to be read. It is, is it science or story? How many of you know that that's a legitimate question? Is it science or is it story? you got to ask the question. And anybody who says, well, it can't be science and it can't be story, well, that's a problem, right? But the question is, is it science? Is it story? Is it myth or history? How dare you, Nathan? Don't you tell me that what has been taught to me in the Bible is anywhere close to related to myth. You need to look up the definition of myth and understand things better. Myth or history? Theological or historical? Is Genesis 1, is Genesis 2 simply trying to paint a picture of a theology of who God is? Or is it trying to paint a picture of a literal history? You need to ask that question. Is Genesis literal or figurative? Is it prose or poetry? Now just think about this for a second. God creates the heavens and the earth and he forms the the world and he does all this stuff. And we look at that, many of us look at that and we say, it's absolutely literal. Okay? Just remember, the ancient mind thought that was literal too and came up with a weird cosmology. Came up with this weird scene. Okay? with four pillars and everything like that. They took it literally, just like you say you take it literally. But let me ask you the question. If literal is the only way to understand the Bible and come away with truth, what do you do with the book of Job? What do you do with the book of Job when God says, hey, Job, were you there when I measured the earth out with a tape measure? Do you go, one of these days when I get to heaven, I'm going to see the Ark of the Covenant, and in there is going to be a cosmic tape measure. That God built the world with. 
No, that's just stupid, right? You believe figurative things, you hear figurative things and understand the truth behind them. God says to Job, you weren't there, sit down, little man. That's the truth of it. You weren't there, sit down. Guess what he wants to do with most of us in our arguments about Genesis? You weren't there, sit down. (laughs) You weren't there, shut up. You know who else wasn't there? The guy who wrote Genesis 1. Do you know who was there at creation? No human being. It makes it really hard for us to understand. Why? We have no eyewitness. We're just taking something, and we're trying our best to understand it, and we're trying to fight for ideas. So here's a couple of ideas that are presented in here. A couple of, these are scholars, doesn't matter if you know their name. Brueggemann emphasizes the role of the text as theological affirmation. His worldview, his perspective on Genesis 1 is that it's a theological affirmation. And listen, before you rule him out, he's a theologian, he's a scholar, he's worked at this for his life's work to come to these conclusions. Do you just get to disband with him and say, nuh-uh, nuh-uh, you don't, right? This guy has said, this is what I feel it is. Gowan gives a concise overview of the problem of genre and evaluates the options, emphasizing, here's his emphasis, that Genesis 1 has no true parallel in ancient literature. You know what that's the equivalent of saying? We've never seen anything like it, so we don't know. Isn't that awesome? I love scholars that don't know squat, right? But he does know squat. He's a very gifted individual. So why do we rule it out? Because we're comfortable with our worldview. That's the truth of it. Let's keep going. A couple more. McKeown specifically addresses the way readers' expectations affect how they understand the text. Translation. The thing you bring to the table interprets what you read. This is confirmation bias. And it's a challenge. Because each and every one of us is guilty of it. We all bring our confirmations to the text. You know what? If I want the text of Scripture to to talk about six literal days, I will read six literal days. If I want the text to read an old earth, I will read an old earth. If I want the text to preach evolution, I will find a way for it to preach evolution. Because we are confirming biased people. And this guy knows it. This is true of you. This is true of me. We've got to be careful with it. Rogerson discusses the issue of myth and whether the Israelites understood the primeval history as mythical or historical. What type of knowing is this guy employing right here? Perspectival. What is he doing? He's saying, I'm going to get back into the ancient mind and I'm going to ask the question, did they see this text as myth or history? That's a good start. That's a good start. You can't understand the book of Ephesians. You can't understand the book of Galatians. You can't understand the book of Romans if you don't understand what was happening in the time. What makes you think you can understand Genesis without understanding the ancient worldview of of Moses coming out of pagan Egypt? What makes you think you can walk away like, I got this, figured it all out? He just saw life as a bunch of equations and beakers and test things and everything. No, no, didn't happen. Go on to the next one. 
Waltke offers a lengthy excursion on the genre of Genesis 1. He also addresses the issue of the literary genre of Genesis as a whole, emphasizing the historicity of the book. So he's asking, how much historical content can we find in this based on the genre? Here's my point. If Edgar Allan Poe, what's his genre? Poetry. Yes, awesome. If Edgar Allan Poe writes a stanza... Are any of you going to look at that and say, ah, he's describing it 100% literally, or is he telling us something that he uses creative language to tell us? He tells us something, it might be true, but he uses creative language to tell us. What happens if Genesis 1 is poetry? What happens if it's poetry? What happens if Genesis 2 is poetry? Are you okay with changing your worldview? Are you even okay with this conversation? <laughs> I just love it. I told you guys at the end of every sermon, I'm here for questions. And based on the looks, I'm dead. I'm dead. <laughs> right? There's going to be death on the stage. So, okay, Waltke. Winham. Go ahead, back to Winham. One more slide back. Wenham provides a lengthy discussion of the form or genre of Genesis 1 that surveys most current theories. So this scholar is looking at just current theories of the genre. The final one. The final one. Next one. Westerman discusses the narrative function of Genesis 1 and compares it with Babylonian creation stories. How many of you know that there are several creation myths and accounts that go beyond the Bible? How many of you know that? Yeah. You know what doesn't happen with those creation myths? Even though that they're faith-oriented based on their religion, nobody analyzes them scientifically. Why? Because Christians asserted the idea that we've put into Genesis 1. Be careful, church. Be careful. No one is assessing the Baal cycle through a through a lens of scientism, okay? No one's doing it. Why aren't they doing that? They don't care. They look at it as myth or complete fiction or whatever they do. The world looks at the Bible that way. But my question is, how do we assess it? How do we read it? I already told you at the beginning of this, I'm going to make some enemies in this series. But I'm going to make enemies not because you're going to walk away thinking Nathan believes some sort of heresy. I'm going to make enemies because I'm not going to allow you to just accept what you think because you want to think it. You know why? Because the world is asking questions and Christians aren't giving good answers. It's back to the start of last week. The, the world is asking questions and Christians are going, it is because the Bible told me so. How many of you recited that when you were a kid? Because the Bible told me so. Because the Bible told me so. Because the Bible told me so. The Bible told the ancient cosmologist something too. And you don't believe that. So it's fascinating what we're about to jump into. Next week, Genesis 1. Next week, in the beginning. What in the world does that mean? Is that something we can understand? I think it is. I think the Bible is always something we can understand. But we're going to start analyzing things. We're going to start looking at Hebrew words as best I can. No Hebrew scholar here, right? But I'm going to give it the best I've got, and then I'll just ask Dwayne a bunch of questions, right? <laughs> right? So, hey, Hebrew, tell me. Tell me what's going on, right? This is, this is the idea. We're going to look through these things. We're going to try to understand it. 
We're going to push through this, and we're going to keep asking the questions. What perspective do I have? What participation am I a part of? All of this. It's all important to what we're doing. So, the first kind of person that you are after today's message, you are a what? You're a philosopher. Every one of you is a philosopher. What you are not are people who get your order right, but that's another story, right? Number one, you are a philosopher. Number two, you are what? A theologian. And what do all of you have? A worldview. Every one of you has a worldview. Every one of us has a worldview. And it is the lens through which we see everything we read, everything we experience, everything to make an interpretation of. Does that sound good to you guys? We're going to work through it, and we're going to get really nitpicky here in a little bit. So bring your thinking caps. Bring your pitchforks and your torches. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. Bring what you got. Bring what you got. I got I've got several people in here that uh, I think will protect me. I'll just, I'll just go with that, right? right? But we'll try it. We'll try it. 